Our most intimate experience can be our greatest inspiration. The place where ideas are born. But what if those ideas stay in hiding? What if they never have the chance to be shared? This show creates a safe space for giving talks anonymously. We value ideas over identity, substance over style. You cannot talk publicly about it. impacted my whole life. I just don't have the constitution to get up on a stage and give a talk. I never told anyone. This isn't something you talk just about. Not, why are they? not if you want people to take you seriously. The secrets we can't tell. From TED and Audible, this is Sincerely X. I had stopped seeing patients as people. They were just diseases and lab values, test results. And I thought, what on earth is wrong with me? That cynical, detached person is a terrible doctor. That's a doctor that kills people. To err is human. And there may be nothing more exquisitely human than making a mistake you desperately wish you could undo. Especially when the mistake may have contributed to someone's death. And especially when you've taken an oath to do no harm. This is the starting point for a talk by a doctor who believes she made an irreversible error. In the course of replaying what happened, she came to a realization about what went wrong and why. On her first phone call, I asked why she wanted to give this talk. The thing itself happened a long time ago. It's been four or five years. But I think it's one of those things that I think about all the time. You work your whole career to not injure people, and you watch it happen. I watch it happen to other people, too. And that's the thing where it's just, we got to do something about this. So the opportunity to talk about something really important that's been burning in my soul for four years anonymously, yeah, that, that wasn't a hard call to answer. I'm June Cohen, a longtime host and curator for TED. And on this program, we'll go on a search for ideas in hiding, ideas that could never be shared in public, but which deserve to be heard. Now, I've worked with hundreds of speakers on their TED Talks over the years, and I found it's rare for someone to admit they've made a grave mistake. What this doctor is about to share is something I can't imagine on the TED stage. And as she prepared to give her talk, I asked how she felt. Right now, I'm nervous. It's my story. It's a real story. It's this patient's story. I really wonder, was it better when it was under wraps? Even though that doesn't make it any less true. That's what I'm thinking about right now. Yet the speaker kept her composure and drove toward the idea she's about to share. All of the talks you'll hear on this program come from people who have chosen to remain anonymous, and some of the voices have been modified to help protect their anonymity. You won't know their names, and my suggestion is that you don't try to figure out who they are. Suspend judgment. Just listen. Mr. W was in his 60s. Not a patient I knew very well, but somebody I'd seen in the hospital for the previous three days. When I saw him that day, he was better than when he had come in, but still sick. 
By the time I walked in, he was just up in bed, screaming at this resident. He's just like, I'm going home. You get me out of here, whatever I have to do so that I can leave, you're gonna do it. And I didn't spend a single second trying to convince him to stay for another day. I didn't think about what it must be like to have your clothes taken away and to have a lot of tubes stuck in you and to be woken up by nurses all day and all night to actually be sick. What I should have said was that I'm the doctor in charge of your care. What can I help you, you know, do or what can I help you solve? Um, which is what I usually say when people are that angry. It's usually powerlessness um, that makes them that angry, which is entirely inflicted by us in the hospital. Instead, what I said was, are you sure you want to go? I'm normally pretty good at talking people into staying in the hospital. Not all the time, but most of the time. A combination of listening and empathy and action can help people agree to stay. But on that day, I couldn't muster up the energy to do any of that. On that day, the only thing I asked was if he was sure. He said he wanted to go. He signed the papers and he left the hospital. I moved on to my next patient. I remember that he still looked sick. And, you know, he was definitely better than when he came in, but he still looked sick. And it's never a good thing when a patient leaves without you thinking, the patient's ready to leave. If they leave for any reason and you don't think they're ready, that's, that's almost always bad. 48 hours later, I met the resident team for teaching rounds again. Do you remember Mr. W, they asked me? He's in intensive care, they told me. He'd been readmitted overnight, hemorrhaging from a gastrointestinal bleed that the GI doctors could not find to fix. He was bleeding faster than he could be transfused. He was dying. And I knew as I heard their news that a better version of myself could have prevented all of this from happening. And a better version of myself, the, the genuine version, I'd like to think, could have caught the small thing that became the big thing that led to the hemorrhage. I could have had the opportunity because that better version of myself would have engaged with him, heard him out, and tried to convince him to stay. Instead, I had just warned him that he could die if he went home. It's a routine threat when we sign somebody out AMA. And now he was back, dying. I didn't exactly make a mistake in the usual sense of the word. I didn't ignore a vital sign or forget to order a medication. I just didn't try very hard. I didn't really try at all with this patient. I figured that if he wanted to go home, I wasn't gonna stand in his way. And that person, that cynical, detached person, is a terrible doctor. That doctor kills people. Mr. W died later that same day, just two days after I discharged him. Not only against medical advice, but against my better judgment. I knew better. I just couldn't manage to care about him. It's a pretty fundamental thing to expect from a doctor. 
that the doctor who's taking care of you in the hospital or in the office will care about you, not just for you. But I had stopped seeing patients as people. They were just diseases and lab values, test results. I sat for a minute in the little conference room where we did teaching rounds, and I thought, what on earth is wrong with me? As it turns out, there is a name for this thing I was suffering from. We call it clinical burnout. Clinical burnout is just this. It's emotional exhaustion, a sense of depersonalization, and deep cynicism. Burnout is awful. It's bad for the doctor, and it's worse for the patient. But as doctors, we don't talk about it. But there is power in naming burnout, just saying its name out loud. Just like any disease, once you name it, you can begin to see it and understand it, prevent it, and maybe fix it. I've come to believe that all doctors must learn to recognize burnout and then act on the symptoms when we see it in ourselves. We doctors are never convinced that we have a duty to care for ourselves, but we also never really believe that our problems can cause any harm to our patients. I killed Mr. W because I was too burnt out to care about him. He'd still be alive if I'd acknowledged my own burnout and the risk I was to my patients. And as I came to realize this, I struggled with what to do. I wanted to take a step back to stop practicing so I didn't hurt anyone else. But we don't do that in medicine. I had literally never known a doctor who said that they couldn't practice anymore, certainly not because of burnout. But now I had proof that I had a huge problem, the worst kind of proof, a patient's death. And as a problem-solving doctor, I had to solve this one. So I got help, one of the harder things I've done in my life, and something that is still hard to talk about. Because it's one thing to admit that you have a problem, and another thing to admit that the problem is so big and so out of control that it was actually harming patients. And I want to make a distinction here because there are two kinds of good doctors. There are genuine good doctors, and there are theoretical good doctors. And as I talk, you might think you want to be seen by a theoretical good doctor because they seem great on the surface. But trust me, you don't. You see, the theoretical good doctor is always there for his patients, no matter the hour, no matter the need. The theoretical good doctor sacrifices herself and puts her patients first. And you're nodding, thinking, of course, good doctors put patients first. That is what good doctors do. Stay with me. The theoretical good doctor will stay up with you all night. We'll squeeze you into her schedule today. We'll fill the paperwork in for you right now. But being this theoretical good doctor comes at a serious cost. Somewhere between working weekend and evening hours to accommodate people and working 28 days a month, theoretical good doctors get lost and burn out, and they don't stay good doctors for very long. They become technically excellent because their long hours give them lots of exposure to medicine and human suffering, but they become cynical, resentful of what they must give up. Then on the other hand, there's a genuine good doctor. The genuine good doctor cares by actually caring, not by displays of self-sacrifice.
In medicine, we're taught from day one to sacrifice our own regular human needs, like eating and sleeping. One of the ways that we insist our students and residents demonstrate their commitment to medicine is through the sacrifice of self. Long calls, sleepless nights, missed meals, time away from family. In training, we have not successfully separated the development of clinical expertise, the idea that you have to do a certain number of surgeries or see a certain number of patients to get really good at it, from the idea that medical training has always been a ritual of hard work and deprivation, and therefore we keep it a ritual of hard work and deprivation. We train our new doctors to think that it's the ability and willingness to sacrifice that makes a good doctor not the actual doctoring skills like kindness and knowledge and empathy. Medicine is unlike teaching or accounting in that there are literally life and death moments happening all the time. There are patients who cannot wait for the doctor to have a sandwich or take a deep breath or even go to the bathroom. Sometimes you will get out of bed in the middle of the night in medicine. All doctors know this. But we've been trained to act like Every piece of paperwork is as important as that code blue happening down the hall. The problem is that when we can't tell the critical and the things that are worthy of that sacrifice from the things that can wait, the doctors break down. We stop caring and we hurt people all because of this myth that in order to be a good doctor, you have to sacrifice the most basic things that people need to keep being human. And so who am I now? I don't try to be a theoretical good doctor anymore. I try to be a genuine good doctor. I do different work now, still in medicine, but less than I used to. I work for a system that I like better. My relationships with my patients are different now too. I'm more real with them now. I try to care about people. If they need something extra, I try to accommodate them when I can. But if I can't accommodate them, if the cost is just too high that day, I don't. I'm better at thinking of myself as someone who is not above needing care. You can't be everything for everyone in medicine, or in any other profession for that matter. Some people just aren't gonna like my style. Some people aren't gonna like your product. Trying to be the theoretical good doctor, or the theoretical good whatever you are, inevitably means that you're doing it for someone else. You're trying to convince other people that you're the perfect thing for them. That's exhausting, and it's draining, and that's a story that ends in burnout. It's another thing to try and be this better version of yourself. There will still be sacrifice in your life and hard decisions to be made, but it'll be sacrificed for a purpose that feels real. That's a genuine pursuit. It's not easy either, but instead of burning you out, it'll energize you. And then the genuine and authentic you can meet the genuine and authentic me in the exam room and we'll both be healthier for it. What do patients need to know about Dr. Burnout? It's really, really common. If your doctor is there, but doesn't seem to care very much, it may be something that your doctor is suffering from. Doctors are allowed to suffer. Um, but you aren't allowed to, to suffer because your doctor is. You know, your, your doctor owes you a healthy version of themselves when they show up to work. 
it's not practical to think that a patient can walk in and say, you know, do a, do a burnout checklist on their physician before they agree to be seen by him or her. But for patients to know that it's very common and that if you start to feel like your doctor is there but isn't caring, isn't, doesn't know you, and it's a doctor where you feel like, I'd be getting better care if my doctor really knew me and was connecting with me, then it's a completely reasonable thing to say so. I felt like I would be getting more if you knew me. Here's what I think you need to know about me. In getting to know this doctor, I was struck by the standards she held herself to. My own mom was a patient a lot like Mr. W. She hated being in the hospital. And when she decided to leave, no doctor could have talked her into staying. And staying wouldn't have saved her. But of course, doctors are trained to believe they can fix anything. It's an exhausting responsibility, one that helps me see more clearly why they burn out. Admitting a mistake is painful, and giving a TED Talk about it may well be worse. Still, a number of years have passed since our doctor saw Mr. W, and so I asked her why she needed to remain anonymous. This may be naive, but I feel better about my ability to practice medicine now um, than I did then. And I want to hold on to that. And that's both a great indication of the problem, because even when I felt like a risk, nobody ever told me that I couldn't practice medicine. Now that I don't feel like a risk anymore, I feel like the potential risk from talking about it just goes up and up. So now the threat is much higher because now I'm on sort of safer footing and now it's less safe to tell this story because of what I could lose by talking about it. I'm June Cohen. Thank you for listening. If you've got something to share on Sincerely X, you can write to us at go.ted.com slash sincerelyx. That's go.ted.com slash sincerelyx. On the next episode... I've never before carried any sort of weapon, but that day, as luck would have it, I did. You'll find new episodes of Sincerely X on channels in the Audible app. Original music on this program is composed by the Holiday Brothers with sound design and mix by Alex Trajano. The Sincerely X production team includes Chloe Shasha and Kelly Stetzel, with help from Amy Eason and Barb Allen. Our executive producers are Darren Triff and Colin Campbell. Creative leadership comes from Chris Anderson at TED and Eric Newsom at Audible. From TED and Audible, this is Sincerely X.